we've been taking the last uh, several weeks and, and talking about this idea, uh, this very spiritual idea, that we are family, and uh, we are part of the body of Christ, the family of faith. It's something deeply spiritual about our connections together. And the last two weeks, we spent looking at the last night that Jesus spent with his family, with his community, with his team. And, uh, and so we, we talked about the last couple of weeks. And of course, that night is known as Monday Thursday. The word Monday comes from the Latin uh, word mandatum, which is where we get the word mandate or mandatory. But it is, it's the night of the new command. It's the new mandate. And so the new command that Jesus gives, he reiterates, he personifies, and then he goes to the cross and, and really shows us what that means. But uh, the new mandate is simply this, to love others as he loves us. Um, now, the Bible says, Jesus said back on it, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law of God. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments and, and the, the, that, that, the law of the perfect standard of a perfect God, the law that was put on mankind, uh, it, it's in our estimation, to be holy, but really, ultimately, God showed us that we can't be holy, uh, was the meaning of the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to say, JK, LOL, no worry about it. He said, I came to fulfill that law. So he did. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And then he gives us a new command. And, and that new command is to love others as he loves us. And, and I, I really truly believe that part of the, the, the priority and the significance of a church community is that together we're learning how to do that. And we're learning what Jesus meant by that. So uh, all, of us are, all of us are new at this. You know, you talk about grace. We're all rookies at grace. We're all new to this. And it's not... Uh, it's not something that's natural for us. It's otherworldly, so it's not something that necessarily makes sense to us. But this journey together is learning how to love others as Christ loves us, what that looks like, what that, what that, what that is experientially, practically. And so uh, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look at um, a picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Uh, this is a beautiful picture of uh, a community that are living this priority out and uh, have got a hold of this, this calling, this priority, and they're living it out. And so we get to see kind of just a kind of behind-the-scenes picture of what this looks like, an aspect of what it means to love others as Christ loves us. So uh, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm just going to read the first nine verses and, uh, and, and we'll talk about this today. So chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed uh, with a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means uh, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. According, uh, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in every, everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and, and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but 
to prove by the earnestness of, you, of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though, uh, though that he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Um, such a beautiful conversation, and, and just to kind of give a little background, uh, Paul mentions Titus. Uh, Titus was a, uh, a Greek Christian who, uh, who was paired up with Paul, became uh, a great partner of Paul's, someone who worked alongside him and, and did beautiful things with Paul. They shared a lot of amazing moments. And, uh, and actually, Titus is the one who's delivering this letter. Uh, uh, he's delivering this letter to the, the church in Corinth. And, uh, and that church is in the southern part of Greece. So Corinth would be the southern part of, of modern-day Greece. And at this stage, uh, he is obviously planting churches like crazy, and he's overseeing these churches. And the church in Corinth was one of those churches that Paul started and, and oversaw. And, and in this letter, Paul is speaking to uh, a... He's bragging about other churches, and he starts talking about these churches in Macedonia. Macedonia would be the northern part of Greece. And so we're, we're talking about Philippi. We're talking about Thessalonica, Berea. So these are the northern, this is the northern part of Greece. So these are other churches that Paul uh, ministers, uh, ministers to, founded overseas. And uh, he's talking about uh, a beautiful grace, as he puts it, that's happening in those churches and uh, at this time, uh, there was a significant famine going on in and around Jerusalem. And so uh, Jewish Christians were suffering uh, significantly. And so other churches that would be churches made up of Gentiles, uh, formerly completely at odds with the Jewish culture and Jewish people, are, are, are leaning in. And begging for the opportunity to get involved and to participate in helping, uh, helping these other fellow Christians. And so these are small local families, immediate families, that are concerned with the, the broader scope of family, their extended family, if that makes sense. So he's speaking to churches uh, that, that were immediate families that were involved in helping the family as a whole, the, uh, the extended family. And so obviously he's bragging about the churches in Macedonia to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth, the lights haven't come on and they have not participated yet. Uh, there's something very spiritual and, uh, and, and dare I say mature about the moment where you cross over from just being a, uh, uh, someone who's present in a family to someone who participates in a family. There's something very spiritual and very mature about that, that crossing over. Um, when I was my, going into my freshman year of high school, and uh, I, I had some friends who uh, were also going into their, their freshman year or whatever, and, and they decided, for whatever reason, they wanted to homeschool that year. And, uh, and I don't know why. It's like homeschooling broke out in, in, in my social circle in our church. And I thought, that sounds great to me. I'm going to try that too. So I had been in public school my whole life. And decided my freshman year of high school, I like to homeschool. And uh, homeschooling is great. And, and if you participate in that, I think it's wonderful. And uh, so my, my parents were like, this is great timing 
because for the first time in several years, my mom was going back to work. And uh, she was reentering the workforce, and, and uh, she was going to be working in retail. And, uh, and, and they had uh, a, a daughter by the name of Allison. And they still have a daughter by the name of Allison. Her last name changed, but her first name's still the same. Uh, Allie Schallenberger is uh, my little sister. And uh, she is 10 years younger than me. So I would have been, what, 13, I think, something like that. And so she was three or four, right? And so my mom asked Chris... If you're going to homeschool, would you mind keeping your sister alive every day of the week? (laughs) Sure. I thought, bonus, that's great. And we got along great, so every day we we ate stovetop stuffing. I became very proficient in making stovetop stuffing. Uh, For breakfast, we would have the uh, dinosaur eggs version of oatmeal. Do you guys remember that? Oh, so good. Or the swirly kind with the jelly. Uh, so good. So we'd eat oatmeal in the morning. We'd have stovetop stuffing or something for lunch. We'd watch uh, Disney movies on VHS. We'd, 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 we'd have a lot of fun. I didn't really do a lot of schoolwork, but that's another story for another day. Um, so thank God for the answer key. <laughs> Cheated. Oh, gosh. This is uh, incriminating. So I, I, uh, I watched her until uh, my parents got home from work. And then also my mom asked, she's like, you're home uh, why don't you clean up? And so this is like home ec, uh, nothing but. So I, I would do my best to clean the house. It was this year at 13 years old that I learned how to do my own laundry. I just sort of figured it out, and, uh, and, and I, I was cleaning and, and trying to, I, I didn't really learn how to cook, but I learned how to microwave some good stuff. And, uh, and so, and then also, uh, on the weekends, my dad's like, I have a son. I'm not mowing the grass anymore. That's why we have sons. Uh, can you please go out there? Now, we had the first lawnmower. It was Fred Flintstone's lawnmower. It was, uh, it was, it was rusted and falling apart and barely worked and worked better when you pulled it backwards. So I, I do the whole yard backwards. And then the day I moved out, my dad got the most expensive, luxurious, it's like a lazy boy on a blade. And I was like, you had to wait, wait till I moved out. He's like, well, I had you. So I'm out there with safety scissors. And um, so uh, I, was, uh, I was keeping my sister. I was cleaning the house. And then on the weekends, I, I'd mow the grass and everything. And, and I've got to be honest with you. I, I know a lot of us, and I probably complained quite a bit. And I'm sure I did. But there was something cool that happened that year uh, within me. I felt very proud that I was involved in the household. I had contributed absolutely nothing prior to this, other than eating the food and, and taking up space. Uh, I, I was contributing, and there was something quite beautiful to that. And I, I give all my credit in the world to my parents. They, they taught my sisters and I both a great work ethic, and we've, we've always uh, enjoyed that. But there was something quite spiritual uh, about contributing. And, and I think that spiritually, in a broader sense, in the, in the, in the family of faith and the family of God, I, I think that's important. And uh, I think this is why the, the, the scriptures talk about our giftings and our abilities and what, we're, what God's given us gifts in, the arenas of er, areas of uh, gifting that we have, contributing, being a part of that. Uh, there is certainly something very specific that's unique to us, but then there's also this kind of all of us need to participate in certain ways as well, be it our presence, just being present, regardless of our gifts, uh, being, being engaged, being together, being community, being in relationship. And as he talks about here, 
helping each other. And, and this conversation is, is talking about finances, which I think is a big part of it, but, but really it's just meeting the needs of the people around us, being, being present and diligent in that endeavor, uh, being, being for other people what they really need and require in the season, and so being present for that and all in for that. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And so uh, this was, this was a, a healthy community of believers that were even to the point where they're reaching out beyond just their own immediate needs, uh, looking to the needs of others even outside of their church family, which is beautiful. Paul, Paul puts it this way. He said that their, their generosity, their giving, is proof of the earnestness of their love for other people. So really, the, this conversation can be relegated in the, uh, oh God, the preacher's talking about giving again. Uh, here's that preacher after my money. Uh, there is a, a way bigger conversation happening here, and that's what Paul is hitting with that sentence. This whole conversation is about love. In fact, uh, I would say this whole conversation is about the great command. This, this is Paul talking about people loving others as Christ loves us. In fact, he's harping on generosity, but that is one of the major aspects and qualities of love. If you, if you go to John 3.16, everybody knows that, that, that verse. It's the most well-known scripture in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave. Love prompted generosity. Not, he didn't give a little bit. He gave everything. So there's something, there's something intrinsic about loving and giving. Uh, those things are intrinsically linked. And so what he is saying here is the proof of our earnestness, of our love for each other, is, is the fruit of our lives. He's talking about fruit showing up. The fruit of love. He's talking about the fruits of the Spirit. You know, James 2 uh, is a very declarative, dramatic statement. Faith without works is dead. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you truly trust God, if you have faith, then there will be fruit on the tree. Uh, Good works are the proof of life that your faith is living and active and you are actively trusting and leaning on Jesus Christ. And so there, there's fruit from that, and that fruit is love and care and consideration of other people, even in a monetary sense. Love and generosity are, are intrinsically linked, and it's important to understand that. Uh, Paul explains these, these verses uh, that cause the generosity. He explains in this, in this letter what actually yields the generosity. I want to do just a little bit of a kind of a, a, a dissection of what's going on because I think there's something to learn here in our own lives. And so uh, what's causing them to be generous? What is the, what is the motivation? What, what was the impetus of this community of believers in Macedonia wanting to actively uh, pursue giving and in, in their involvement in helping other people? And he, he makes it clear, I didn't tell them to do this. This wasn't me laying down the law and saying, you better, you should, you ought. He said, they chased me down. Paul was walking down the road. He'd already left, and they were chasing down the car like someone forgot their milkshake at Chick-fil-A, and they were running after the car or camel or whatever Paul's got and, uh, and knocking on the windshield like, hey, we want to help out. So this is a community that's moved by something. What, is the, what are they moved by? Well, this is what the Bible says. We want you to know 
brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What is compelling them to help other people? The grace of God. What's motivating them to give? The grace of God that was freely given to them. Because they were given grace, their move, their response to that is to give to others. So when our eyes are truly open to the magnitude, the amazing grace of God, a community that is consumed by and compelled by grace will preoccupy themselves with others. How do we know if grace is really clicking? How do we know that the lights are coming on as it relates to the grace of God? Then it's when our, our, our attention starts to move outward. When, when it's not about me anymore. Just to, just to kind of practically explain the move there, uh, grace is God's un, unrelenting, undeserved, um, uncontrollable, overwhelming, extravagant love and favor towards us. It is not something we deserve, but it's something that he gives freely to us because he loves us. Now, the opposite of that would be I, I live in the grace of God or I am taking matters into my own hands and so my life is a self-salvation project. So it's either receive everything fully from God that he is our source. We talked about last week with the, with the conversation about the vine and the branches. He's our source. He's everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is all that I need. He is the beginning and the end. He is, the Bible says in Romans 11, that, that for from him and through him and to him are all things. That leaves out nothing. Uh, Christ is the head. Christ is our source. In him we live and breathe and have our being. He's everything. And so the grace of God is his move towards giving us everything, that, not because we deserve it, because he loves us. Otherwise... We are not receiving the free gift of grace, and so we are trying to manufacture life on our own. This is the fall in the garden. Uh, the fall in the garden was pretty simple. I've given you everything. You, you lack nothing. It's paradise. For whatever reason, paradise wasn't enough. And so they felt like they had to do something in order to become something more. They were already like God. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no upward mobility necessary. You, you're, you're there. You've arrived, and, but there's still an insistence to do for self. Uh, self-salvation, which has been the fall ever since. We're addicted to self-salvation projects. We're addicted to justifying ourselves. We're addicted to trying to uh, give our life meaning and purpose. We're, we're addicted to trying to find that for ourselves instead of trusting that we have it in, in Christ. So, the opposite of receiving grace... Is taking matters into our own hands. And, and let me tell you what that looks like practically. It, it, yes, it looks like the, uh, the younger brother in the prodigal son story. I'm going to go live it up. It's all about me. I want no responsibility. Uh, we, we look at adolescents this way. Uh, college kids, God bless them. Whew, uh, pray for their brains. And so uh, there is a, there is a, uh, a, a desire to get out there, make some mistakes, do some foolish things, and, uh, and then try to experience the fullness of life. 
as if that's where life is. And we, we, we see it that way. And as we get older, we're like, <laughs> silly kids, come on. And we don't, we don't necessarily go that same way. We're more controlled and, and regimented, reserved. But in the same way you see it in the, in the younger brother in the prodigal son story, you see it in the older brother. It's the same thing. The older brother was just way more buttoned up. He had a tie on. And he was a, a very good religious person. So I, I've heard it said that, that not only do we need to repent from our bad deeds, we need to repent from our good ones too. And the meaning behind that is you believe that you are saving yourself, whether you're trying to save yourself through breaking the rules or keeping the rules, you think that this is on you. You've been, been misled that your right standing with God is something you control. And when you think that way, you view the world that way. So uh, obviously our, our convenient blind spot is I'm pretty good, I'm doing great, I'm acing the course. These other knuckleheads, they're dropping the ball. So then you get cynicism, you get a little judgment, you get a little uh, self-righteous sanctimony going on and start looking over your shoulder at your neighbor and say, they are sinning so dramatically, uh, they, are, they are the worst person I know. And, uh, and the truth is, we all fall short of the glory of God. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you, you, you're going to have to be perfect. If you're going to ace the course, you've got to be perfect, as my father's perfect. That's the standard. It's not pretty good. It's perfect. He said, uh, you haven't killed anyone. Congratulations. Round of applause. You haven't killed anybody. But have you ever had anger in your heart? Have you ever driven rush hour traffic in Chattanooga, Tennessee? Then you've had anger in your heart. Uh, you've never committed adultery. That's wonderful. Congratulations. But have you ever lusted in your heart? The, the bar has been lowered significantly, and Jesus put it back where it meant to be, where it was meant to be. He says, no, perfect. That's where we need to be. So, so our self-salvation project is not just trying to find life and meaning in breaking the rules. It's also trying to li- find life and meaning in keeping the rules. Self-righteousness. That's exactly what we're meant to avoid. That's not where we're meant to be or live. We're meant to live in a place of desperate, desperately leaning on, as we sang this morning, his grace, his love, his mercy. It is, it is all Jesus. Either his grace is sufficient or we're in deep, deep trouble. So this grace, when you're, when you're awakened to it, when you see the overwhelming nature of it, when you realize that you weren't pretty good and God put a little icing on the cake, we were lost. We weren't bad, we were dead. We weren't bad people. Jesus didn't come to make bad people into good people. He came to make dead people live. He's resurrected us from the dead. If there's not some celebration, some appreciation for that, then maybe we have not fully embraced what the grace of God truly is all about. Because when a community is is engaged in the grace of God, they're obsessing over it then what happens is they get outside of themselves and they want to share it. This is too good not to share. So it has a chemical reaction. Paul goes on to say that the grace of God, it, 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 they're moved by grace, they're moved by grace, but they're also abounding in joy, and they are generous in their love. And so this whole picture is a picture of love. But the grace of God moves them into a place of joy. And the joy is what moves them into a place of giving. 
being generous. So this is what the Bible says. In a, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Joy moved them to be generous. Joy did that. Uh, now, it is, it is normal to want to draw a, a direct line connecting our joy and our circumstances. When life is good and things are going my way, then joy will be the result. I'm not experiencing joy right now because things are not going the way they should be going, but, but I'm going to read this again. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and, simultaneously, their extreme poverty overflowed. You cannot draw a direct line from their circumstances and their joy. In fact, joy has to come from a deeper place than our circumstances because it's joy that we need in the worst circumstances. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And if we don't have the strength of God in our, our, in our dark moments, then our dark moments get the best of us. That's when we need it. You can't draw a direct line from their circumstances to the joy, but you can draw, draw a direct line from the grace of God and their joy. I, I, I truly believe that a lot of the reason that we feel low in our modern culture is because we're digging in the wrong place. We're searching for joy in the wrong place. It's like God gave us a map and said, I'm going to show you exactly where to find joy. And then for whatever reason, we insist upon, no, 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 I know better. Have you ever driven with someone who knows better than their GPS? Sonia, stop raising your hand right now. That we feel like we know better. Or we feel like the world knows better. Again, we've been saying this a week, we, uh, for weeks. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. We were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. This is not our home. We're built and made for something greater than this. and We're eternal beings having a natural existence for the time being. But what we do is we put all the eggs in the baskets of the natural experience. And we say the world tells us how to feel. The world tells us what to do. The world defines success for us. And we wonder why we're miserable. Why we're at each other's throats. Because his ways are higher. His thoughts, his thoughts are higher. And that's where we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be seeking and being led by the kingdom of God. And so this is a, a better place to find joy. And that is in the overwhelming grace of God. We find our joy, which is our strength, in this idea. Look what the Lord has done. Now, I, I'm not a, uh, a, an annoyingly optimistic person. I would never call myself that. I'm, I, I have a, a, a spiritual gift of cynicism. I'm, very, I'm cynical in a funny way, but also in a detrimental way. Um, I would say I'm a realist. Um, I don't live with my head in the clouds. I'm pretty aware of myself and my surroundings. And so I would say I'm a realist. And, and I would say that on the days that I feel the lowest and the most defeated are the days when I'm captivated by the bad news. 
And I would say that the days that I feel uh, elevated, I feel stronger, I feel some sense of joy are the days that I've focused my attention on the good news. The good news. The gospel. There's a reason the gospel is called the good news. Because it is. It's impossibly good news. And in a world that is bent on bad news, there's a reason that this fallen, fallen and broken world the, the good news does not sell. There's a reason that what's sought after and that's what sells, what, what really motivates modern media, all news, all the channels, I don't care which channel you, listen, you watch or listen to, it's all doom and gloom. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's all chicken little. All of it. The sky is perpetually falling. This is a a world that is bent on bad news. We're consumed by it. There's a reason that the gospel is called the good news, because it is. It's good news for a broken and fallen world. And we need it. The Bible says faith, which we're supposed to live by and walk by. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing. The gospel. We need it. So this is, a, this is a community that is listening to the gospel, that is focusing on the good news, that is consumed by the grace of God, that's getting outside of their circumstances and say, yes, Jesus says it in his last night with his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. We're not, we're not sticking our heads in the sand and ignoring it. But you can take heart because I've overcome all of it. Acknowledging the reality, but immediately bringing in the good news. I I believe this, and I'm going to start hammering this nail harder and harder and harder. We need to be a culture that is always pointing to Jesus, even in the worst moments. This phrase should be coming out of our lips a lot. Look what the Lord has done. Now, that's not a, a silly focus on the positive and manifest positive. I don't, uh, that's, I don't believe that. I believe this. God is over it all. We can trust him. We need to move, lift our heads, lift our eyes to something greater and bigger. To live in a place of faith, to live in a place of trust, is way better than living underneath the weight and the burden of this broken and fallen world. Hope is an anchor for our souls, and our souls need to be tethered to something. And only the hope in, in, in God will do. It's the only thing that won't shift, that won't move on us. It's the only constant we have. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So joy is our strength, and what it carries us to do is love. What it causes us to do, what it brings us to a place of is love. Love and care for others. This whole picture is a picture of love and consideration of others. Um, Paul kind of continues this conversation. I'm going to share one more verse, and then we're going to wrap up. So if you skip over to uh, chapter 9, and uh, verses 7 and 8, this is sort of a continuation of the same idea, the same, the same, uh, the same sentiment that he's sharing one chapter before. And uh, I th- we, we've heard this one, but it's, it's well known, but it's so important. He says this, each one of us, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly 
or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then he goes on to say, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We've heard this. God loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean? Don't give under compulsion. Don't give because you're supposed to. And, And here's a big one. Don't give because you look good when you do. Churches have been, become famous for social media posts of their goodness. Check out what we did. Boop, boop. It's a PR move. I, I believe this wholeheartedly. Uh, we are meant to be gospel Batman. That when we do something for someone, we disappear. Who was that masked man, which is the Lone Ranger, but whatever, I can mix metaphors. God's grace is sufficient. Uh, there's not, there's not a lingering like ticker tape parade celebration. The Bible says don't let the left hand know what your right hand's doing. Just do it because God's compelled you to do it, not because you want something in return. Because I think we're used to, if we hold, so if you hold a door open for someone and they say thank you, you're like, you're quite welcome. Like you just donated a kidney to them or something. This was very difficult for me to do, but mm, you're welcome. Save your strength, ma'am. <laughs> uh, in, but then, if they don't say thank you, you want to drag them back out, shut the door, and be like, do it yourself! When you let someone in, traffic, and they give you the wave, you're like, yes, sir. <laughs> you feel very powerful. Yes, come onto my road, sir. You, you may enter. If they don't give you the wave, you want to cut them off. Like, yo. It's amazing how our, the heart changes based on the response. And what we're supposed to be compelled by is something that it, it, it doesn't require response. In fact, God's love for us is one way. Do you think you could ever reciprocate God's love for you? Come on. I love the old church signs that say, God died for you, you better live for him. I'm, I'm trying. But I don't think at any stage my life is going to be worthy of the sacrifice God made. And I, I think trying to live in a, a, the illusion of that is, is a death sentence for your faith and spirituality. I, I think it's far more freeing to live in the overwhelming grace. That for, Jesus loves me, this I know. That is the deep end of the theological pool. doesn't get deeper than that. I think that there's, there's something freeing to just being open to God's love and move without any repayment necessary. So when the Bible says, don't give under compulsion, don't give because it's a show, don't give because you get something out of it, the Bible says that we should all give, which I think that's an important phrase, each one should give. Well, I'll give when I'm going through a better circumstance. Well, actually, the church of Macedonia shows us that that's not, that's actually not right. There's not, our circumstances don't motivate us to give. Our bank account doesn't motivate us to give. That would, that would mean that your money tells you what to do. Good times tell you what to do. We're not led by that. We, we live, we walk by faith, trust in the Lord. And so the churches of Macedonia, deep poverty, extreme affliction, 
they wanted to participate in any way they could. So the widows might. I, I got something I want to get. Something being moved by something bigger than just your current circumstances, your bank account. So uh, the Bible says here, Paul says it, God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must do what's in their heart. It's Romans 10.10 10 says it's where the heart of a person believes. It's, it's moved by trust, it's moved by faith, but each one should do, uh, do what is on their heart uh, out of a place of a cheerful heart. Cheerful giving. What does that mean? Joy. Abounding joy. So if we're doing a diagram, grace leads to joy, which leads to generosity. And this whole picture is love. It's loving others as Christ loved us. Because it was grace that moved him. Out of joy, the joy of his heart. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he freely gave us all things. There's no love greater than that. This whole picture is a picture of love, but it's fueled by grace. It moves us to joy. Joy, abounding joy. Overwhelming joy. That in our darkest moments we can be reminded, but yes, this is not good. And I'm not going to pretend that it is. But what is good is that Jesus loves you and he's got you. He died for you. There's something bigger than just circumstances. It elevates our focus. And then when our focus is elevated, we start to preoccupy ourselves with other people instead of just our own stuff. Instead of just being self-sufficient, we trust God. He's got us. His grace is sufficient. Therefore, we can move into a place of helping other people. There was a, um, I'll close with this. There was a great commentary I read on, on this verse that we just read, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 and 8. Uh, I love this commentary. And I, I jotted it down, and I want to share it as we wrap up. Uh, it says this. What motivated the members of the early church to give so generously was an obligation. It was revelation. As we sh- shall see later, as the church goes on, the early church enjoyed a supernatural unity that caused them to act as a single body, and because they realized they truly belonged to one another, they felt compelled to take care of one another. I love that. In, in, in uh, chapter 8, Paul says, uh, they gave themselves to God, and by his grace they also gave themselves to us. In, in that, pic, that word picture is that I belong to him, and because I belong to him, I belong to the family of Christ. I belong to him, and we belong to each other. He is the vine, we are the branches. There is a, there is a belonging. And because of that belonging, there is a, uh, as we're seasoned on the vine, as we remain, as we abide, as we stay rooted and grounded in love, as we, as we stick with, with Christ as being the head, the source, there will be maturity that happens. It doesn't happen overnight, but after a season of time, there, we move into a place uh, from being spectators to participants. We move from a place of just watching God do His thing to being a part of what God's doing. It was me as a kid in my freshman year of high school. I moved from just being a spectator, watching everyone do everything, to being a participant, being involved in the family. And, and I, I think that's exactly what 
the maturity of this love developing in our hearts, learning to love others as he loves us. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a little just uh, a little tributary that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. All these amazing qualities of love. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about, and when I was young, I did childish things. Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? But then he goes on to say, but I've grown up, and now there's a maturity. Because there is a maturity that is required to share love. Children are beautiful and wonderful gifts, but they are not known for their generosity. None of our first word was yours. A lot of our first word, mine. They're not, they're not known for their ability to share and consider others. In fact, just the very nature of a baby is the most needy creature ever. They're not ex- they, their only contribution is their presence. They're not contributing to the household. And it's cute and lovely and wonderful, and we celebrate that. We celebrate life. We, we love babies. But eventually, that's okay for a baby, but when you're 25 years old and you need to be burped. When you're 25 years old and, and you cannot feed yourself, there's probably something wrong. So this is Paul saying in the midst of love, there, there should be movement outside of ourselves to participate in a really beautiful way to consider other people. So, may we be a family, may we be a culture that aspires to love like that. That aspires to love like the church in Macedonia. Yes, financially, but also in other ways as well. Meeting the needs of others, being present in people's time of need, to, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, but also celebrate with those who celebrate, to be active. This whole statement, the idea of family church is aspirational. It is not a, a, a statement of uh, arrival. We're going there. To talk about loving others as Christ loves us, we're not checking every box on that. We are, we're newbies at this. We're learning how to do this. And, and the joy of the community of faith, the family of faith, is learning how to do this together. I've learned so much about how to love other people by being loved well by you. I, I love giving people grace and, and space to be themselves, and I love that, and I've learned that because you guys give me grace and space to be myself. That I can dress today like a grown-up, but next week I might be wearing, I might look like a teenager from the 90s. And you're okay with that, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I don't always say things right or do things right, but you give grace, and, and I, that's the place I want to be a part of, is a place where we're free to be ourselves and to be uh, present in the journey and the growth together. So may we compel each other to love and consider other people as Christ loves us.